0: Confession, deconstruction and dealing with the past. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand what I'm anyway. He got problems? He wants on them. But i not talk and talk and talk till you in the face. Science making their life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, a weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. This week I've got some exciting news. We're planning an event called Belong with the Liturgists, and I'll talk more about that at the end of the program, so stick around. I'd love to see you there. Lots of great questions this week, and I'm looking forward to it, so what do you say? Let's get it started. Hey, Mike.
1: Um, First of all, thanks for all you do. You're awesome. And secondly, we hear about your story about your massive deconstruction, and there are other people out there in terms of faith talk about having to deconstruct one's faith before one can actually build up something new and possibly more beautiful. I guess my question is, do you feel like in order to experience this new faith that you always have to deconstruct and get rid of everything? Or is there a natural growth that can occur just from changing your mind about things? Thanks.
0: Deconstruction is absolutely a way to a new and more beautiful understanding of God. One possible way. I mean, deconstruction is also a way to become an atheist and not believe in God at all. Uh, it's, it's not like a faith TV dinner, deconstruct and, and pull a better God out of the microwave. It's not, it's not how it works. But for me, certainly, uh, the way I understood God before had to get taken apart completely before I could know God in a new way. It's not the only way that people come to know God better or to have, a more beautiful experience with God. There are a lot of people in my life whose faith I really admire who have never been through a significant period of deconstruction. My own mom is one of those people. You know, my mom is is probably pretty conservative theologically, um, but her understanding of God's grace through her theology leads her to approach all people. With a desire for reconciliation For hope, for grace, for forgiveness For compassion, for empathy And it's interesting to me to watch my mom Continually grow closer to God Now, interestingly enough in mom's life She has faced adversity She's faced pain And she's faced difficulty She's suffered, and those things have brought her closer to God. Now, if I look for a common thread between my story and my mom's story, it's that in the times that seemed the darkest, those were, in fact, the times that we grew the closest to God. For me, that meant watching God die. For my mom, that meant something different. I've got another friend, Bradley, and he struggled with drug addiction, and became closer to God as he recovered. And then his divorce, his marriage fell apart, he got divorced. And that period of suffering brought him closer to God. There wasn't deconstruction. There wasn't doubt like I had for either Bradley or my mom. For them, it was a continual process of leaning on and trusting God. Ultimately, the common theme in all those that I see is circumstances push back on our assumptions, they push back on our comfort, and we have to learn to humble ourselves and rely on God, on something greater than ourselves. You know, that was really difficult for me, not believing in God, <laughs> to, to rely on God. I think probably there are some advantages to the continual growth and ongoing love for God that I see in, in other people in my life. But I I don't think deconstruction is the only way there. I think it's certainly a common way to a new faith today. I think that the vast amounts of information available on the internet, the global communication, the scathing critiques of theology and apologetics available online, certainly are encouraging a great season of deconstruction. Uh, Unlike many people, though, I don't see that as the end. I don't think that religion is on its way out, or even that Christianity is on its way out of culture. But instead, uh, I think we're in the beginnings of a reformation, that um, Christ's church on this earth is adapting to the times as it has done for thousands of years. And it looks post-denominational to me. It looks post-institutional, and what really excites me is how many people I know who are personally in love with Jesus Christ, and I know I sound like a, a, a fundamentalist preacher to a lot of my secular friends and listeners of the program, I apologize, just got to call it like I see it here, but people who in their life really love Jesus, but the way they express that love for Jesus is serving others and by meeting people where they're at. And I think that is beautiful. So deconstruction is one way that people arrive at a new faith, but I certainly don't think it's the only way. Our next question came in from the email box at asksciencemike.com, and it reads, Science Mike, I have a question about prayer and the power of suggestion. I recently read a memoir where the author describes his doubts in his faith. He comes to a point where he feels faithless when a friend asks him to lead a Bible study. He initially declines, then the friend asks him to commit to praying about it every Monday for four weeks. Boy, that's oddly specific. The author was still reluctant after the first Monday of prayer, but inevitably by the fourth week, he felt at peace and accepted the leadership of Bible study. Now, this got me thinking. I've had lots of experiences where people ask me to do something, then say, pray about it, and I end up doing it. But if I'm honest, I end up doing it because I don't want to let the other person down. And the times I really haven't wanted to do what a friend asked, the more I pray about it, the more comfortable I feel about it. Now, when I end up doing what is requested of me, the friend always says something like, see, prayer works, or... God always comes through, huh? My question is, what does science say about this? Is this the power of suggestion? I believe in my experience it has been, because when I look back on the decision, I feel crummy and dishonest. This, of course, has led me to become skeptical of other stories of their prayers for direction. I start to think, well, you prayed about becoming a missionary for three months, so it's no surprise you felt comfort about it, You got used to the idea. Still, being in a church setting, I fear the next time someone asks me to pray about serving somewhere in the church or leading something. I fear mostly saying no and looking like a jerk, partially because I think people ask us to pray about such things because they themselves believe the Lord told them I'm supposed to lead this or serve there. Of course, I would also feel like I couldn't trust my decision anyway, with my skeptical view based on my experience. I guess part of this question is just a prayer question, and part is a faith-community-sociological question. Is there a healthy posture to take when asking someone to lead or serve somewhere? Due to the power of suggestion, should we just ask people to think about it logically, then bring a power word like prayer into it? Please, Science Mike, help me sort out my brain. Oh man, well, that's a long question, but that's a good question. I'm really tempted to punt to Pastor Betsy again. Uh but it's Wednesday night and the episode's gotta get recorded for you guys to hear it. So I don't I don't have time to do that. Man, there's so much to unpack here. First I thought it was gonna be a question about intercessory prayer. Uh and so that's what I like. I took my little two minutes of uh of question prep and, and totally set up for intercessory prayer, and that's not even what the question is about. So I am completely this is an off-the-top-of-my-head answer, everybody. There's there's no notes for me here. Uh, first of all, I think prayer is most useful when we think of prayer as a way that we connect to God, and by doing that, align ourselves with the same energy that created the universe, a creative force. We co-create reality with God, and prayer is a mechanism that we do that. And I pray about everything, believe it or not. Mr. Non-Theist Mystic prays about everything um, with the assumption that there's a personal God listening rattling around in my skull somewhere. And I find that to be incredibly comforting. But that's because I don't really factor in the expectations of other people when I pray. I have learned that there is a profound power in saying no to things I don't want to do that I'm not gifted to do, or even things I'm gifted to do, but aren't related to the mission of my life. My friend Rob Bell always says, you can't say no to anything until you said yes to something. So if you don't know what it is you were put on this earth to do, of course you just weigh and consider opportunities brought to you by other people. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that there's that we were made to live missional lives. So I know that the mission of my life is to help people know God in an age of science. So any opportunity that comes my way has to further that goal. So does, does recording Ask Science Mike and ha- taking hours out of my week to make this program fulfill that? Absolutely. Does working with the liturgists and Michael Gunger fulfill that mission? Absolutely. Does my blog, does my book, does speaking events? Absolutely. Does getting in my email box and spending hours a week replying to hundreds of messages from strangers fulfill that mission? Absolutely. That's why I do it. It means I also turn down a lot of great opportunities that I'm qualified to do because they don't fulfill the mission. And sometimes people are upset. They want you to do an appearance. They want you to serve on a committee or a board of directors or whatever. And I don't do it because it doesn't fulfill the mission. So I would say the first thing you should pray about and you should study Is what are you here to do? What has God put in you that only you can do? What is the story that only you can tell? What is the community that only you can help? Think in those terms and stop worrying so much about what other people want you to do. Now, let me me be clear. For churches to work, people have to volunteer. <laughs> and in most churches, a very small number of people do all the work. But what I'm saying is it's best if people do the work in the church that's missional for them and aligns with their giftedness. Now, there's there's a whole category of things you might do that aren't missional. It doesn't help people know God in an age of science. When I have dinner with my family, it doesn't help people know God in an age of science. When I get up in the morning and drive to work and set up a network for an ad agency, those things aren't missional, but the ad agency does put food on the table and I like the people there. So it it becomes a fundraiser. It becomes a support for the work I do and It also becomes a a way I get fed socially. I like seeing the people I work with. If I just sat in an office at my house all day, I'm an extrovert. I would get super lonely. When I sit down with my kids and my wife at the dinner table, that is life-giving. That prepares me to do the work that I'm here to do. So I think this is actually less of a prayer question. Absolutely, I think you should pray about these things. But it's more of a you need to know who you are and what you're here for so that you are not manipulated intentionally or unintentionally by other people. Now, is there some suggestion power? Is there psychological pressure when someone uses prayer in a leadership position? Totally. Absolutely. Is confirmation bias probably at play a lot in the way that we interpret the outcome of prayer? Absolutely. I still like to pray and it, It still helps me get through the day. And that rhymed.
1: Hi, Mike. I have a question about confession. I know that confession is important for Christians and is a part of sharing our lives with each other. What's the science behind confession? Why is it so difficult for us as humans to confess to each other, but so relieving when we do? Thanks. I love your work.
0: Well, confession is hard because it exposes us. Uh, We fear the consequences of revealing that which we confess. Confession is tied to ideas of sinfulness, of transgression, of guilt, and of shame, right? And we're a social species, and we have an instinctual drive, a deep, deep drive to get along with others, to look good to our peers, and to have the best social standing that we possibly can. And so we're afraid of exposure, That's why we don't like to confess things. But it's so cathartic, isn't it? Well, here's the deal. Uh, Most people are neither honest nor dishonest. Most people are a little bit dishonesty, a little bit dishonest. And meaning if no one is looking, most people will cheat the system a little bit. For example, uh, most people won't take money from a jar but people will absolutely take a pencil from the office. Even if the even if it's a dime and a pencil and their similar monetary value, nobody minds stealing the pencil from work. They really don't even consider it stealing. We we are totally terrified of being thought of as bad and we think of ourselves as good. And whenever we do something that goes beyond our normal level of comfortable dishonesty, we feel guilty. And that's the things we tend to confess. People don't confess to To stealing the pencils, because they they still view themselves as a good person when they do minor actions like that. When you do something greater, when you go, ah, what the heck, and you you really, you do something incredibly dishonest, you feel guilty about it. And that guilt, even though whatever you did may have offered you some success, uh, you probably wouldn't have done it if there wasn't some potential upside, by the way. That guilt creates uncertainty. Because you don't know what's going to happen if someone finds out about your transgression So as long as you're hiding this guilt and shame It's a constant stressor It's stealing your brain's ability to be certain about reality And your brain loves certainty Man, do human brains love certainty So once you speak out and confess Either to a friend or to a clergy Depending on your faith tradition or lack of faith tradition You know what the consequences of your actions are because they happen. And you no longer fear discovery. So even though you may have potentially lost some social standing, what you've actually gotten is what? You've gotten some certainty. And by the way, a lot of times, confession, asking for forgiveness and reconciling, creates greater intimacy and greater social security. So it's even a behavior that humans often reward. Now, Dan Ariely who wrote The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, and I'll link a video of his uh, in the show notes on AskScienceMike.com for this question. He started talking about the mechanisms, uh, psychosocially, about why confession works based on some research and data that he did. And it's, it's really quite fascinating. One of the things that confession does is remind us that moral codes exist, and research has shown that when you're reminded of a moral code, for example, if you ask an atheist to recite the Ten Commandments in an experiment and then give them the opportunity to do honest or dishonest behaviors, statistically, that atheist uh, will be a little bit more likely to be more honest, as will believers. You know, but the whole point is being reminded of a moral code has been shown to reduce dishonest behavior. So there's this practical effect that confession really does make you behave better for a little while. Um, But when confession produces more lasting change, it's a different mechanism. And that confession effectively resets your life. It wipes the slate clean, and it gives you this psychological fresh start. It fosters an environment where we can ask for forgiveness. And that leads to that feeling of reconciliation and that greater social security which is an incredibly powerful motivator for a social species like this. We don't want to mess up our clean slate that we get from the act of confession. It's really quite fascinating. The Truth About Dishonesty is a terrific book. It's a great read and uh, will help you understand some of the cognitive psychology around how and when humans tell the truth and uh when they when they cheat and that, by the way which has fantastic implications for uh financial reform politics uh and and the way we create social incentives so the truth about dishonesty uh linked in this week's show notes great question thank you
1: hi mike my name is alex and this is a question that i previously asked on twitter but i wanted to clarify my meaning as 140 characters, wasn't really helping me. Um, I asked you a question about experiences in your childhood that you've addressed, such as bullying, um, issues of self-worth and um, feelings about yourself. Um, I'm wondering how it is that you dealt with those issues, how you find you can process them in a way that is constructive and realistic. Um, an issue for myself would be that there's there's issues of, of self-worth and, and how I value myself I feel it would be easier to ignore because to expose them feels almost overwhelming Uh, and it's much easier just to accept my my view of myself just to accept that I'm always going to have these problems and to build an image of myself that I just defend Um, and so I'm wondering if you could comment how it is that you've dealt with issues in your own life and if you could give any advice on how the best way to do that would be thanks
0: I actually answered this question uh, for this week's blog post, and I'm doing it again on the podcast because so many people emailed me today saying that that blog post helped them. I'm really fortunate in that uh, people take the time to email me and thank me uh, for specific work that I've done and tell me what it meant to them, Um, but even with that Incredible environment of generosity I'm surrounded with all the time That you guys encourage me so much This post was really exceptional In the amount of emails I got So I figured it was probably worth a double uh, Shot between the blog And the podcast Because we've all got Souls that are full of shame All the traumas All the rejection All the pain In our past Shapes our present Tremendously, especially in the West. Here's why: uh, I was uh, going through therapy a couple of years ago because I was leaving my faith community. I was in the process of a spiritual divorce, and those days, I was uh, I was writing and speaking like I am now, but still an active member of a Southern Baptist church. And it just didn't work for me to write about marriage equality and evolution and all the topics that. Uh, people want to hear my voice on being part of a faith community that did not believe those things, and um, it was just a really painful thing for me. It was leading to some depression, you know, making it hard for me to just get through the day. So I, I sought help. I went to see a professional, and um, I can be a, a, a pain in the butt in a therapy setting because you can imagine. Science, Mike, and therapy. I tend to imagine what school of psychological thought the advice is coming from, and deconstruct what my therapist is doing as my therapist therapizes. And um, I mean, I kind of bumped around to a couple of different therapists until I found one who could help me. And this therapist really leaned on me: one, to quit trying to take apart her toolbox, and two to talk about things that I thought I didn't need to talk about. So she kept wanting to talk about me being bullied as a kid. And I didn't want to talk about that, not because it scared me, but because it bored me. Uh, I, In my mind, I've already dealt with that. Um, because, you know, a critical thing in dealing with the past is forgiving people. And I knew that, and I had forgiven all those people. That's what, Allowed me to function as a whole human being. It's the reason there aren't news articles about me being a school shooter uh, in the 90s. It's because I forgave those people. But she still wanted to talk about it. So I could describe to her any event uh, from my childhood. I could tell her all about getting, you know, pushed over, having softballs thrown at my head, or, um, you know, the ways I was. But I was genuinely tortured as a kid. You know, I remember telling her with dry eyes about uh, someone um, giving me purple nurples until I actually, my nipple actually bled. And then I got made fun of for having a red spot on my shirt. You know, just that kind of, that kind of brutality. But it didn't bother me to talk about those things. And then my therapist asked me how those things made me feel. And that was a difficult question. Because when I tried to recall the feelings of those events, it was as if I was, I mean, I used a door as an analogy in my blog post that, that, uh, you know, you're walking through your house and suddenly there's a door in the hallway that wasn't there before that you'd never noticed, uh, which is startling. But then when you move towards the door, it's as if there was just this pressure emanating from it. I remember talking about the time it, it just felt like a toxic red hot bubble. In my psyche And I started to have kind of a panic attack In the in the therapist's office Which really confused me So like simultaneously I'm kind of starting this panic attack My uh, higher consciousness My prefrontal cortex I suppose Is actually deconstructing the event as it happens It says why are you freaking out There's nothing to freak out about So then that led to us talking about why I don't cry I do now but why I didn't cry then I taught myself not to cry as a defense mechanism, to not be bullied so much. But I couldn't couldn't go into that, that room. I couldn't open that door in my life. I couldn't explain how I felt. It was too hard. It was too hard to remember. I couldn't do it. So for a few weeks in therapy... My therapist would gently guide me back towards my childhood, and I would get near that door again, and I could not move any farther, which frustrated me. Because, you know, I'll be honest, I'm used to, through a lifelong uh, pattern of uh, self-imposed cognitive behavioral therapy, of being able to feel what I want to feel when I want to feel it and process through emotions uh, relatively quickly, and this I couldn't. I was on the phone one day with my friend Bradley. He's been mentioned twice in one episode. He's going to love it. Uh, But Bradley and I were talking about my experience in therapy, and he asked me what I would say to the seven-year-old Mike if seven-year-old Mike was sitting across from me. And as I tried to imagine what I would tell myself, who I knew when I was that age, how miserable I was, And how even as a grade schooler, sometimes I wanted to die. I broke. That door opened up and grief just poured out. Grief over the childhood I could have had, over the friendships I never had. And it it wrecked me. I was in bad shape for a long time. Uh, Family was out of town and I'd been sitting in my oldest daughter's room for some reason having this conversation. That was tough. But the next week when I went into therapy, as I talked about how I felt, I was able to tell my therapist. And this time, I was still crying, but I wasn't sobbing hysterically, and I could actually talk. And I was able to tell her about how I felt and how much it hurt and how much it still hurt. And then week after week, we would go in and we would do this again. And each week, it was a little bit better. Now, this annoyed me. Because my thought was, once I'd opened that grief well, it should be over. But it wasn't. And the fact that I couldn't figure out why these feelings kept bothering me. um, I mean, I couldn't actually deal with the feelings. I don't know if you've noticed. I have a tendency to want to know the why (laughs) and the mechanics, how this works. So I did some research, some brain research. Shocker. And I found out that when you remember something. Your brain goes into a state uh, that reflects that event. So if you think about your mom and you know your mom and you have a great relationship, your anterior cingulate cortex is going to activate. the part of the brain does compassion and empathy and, and warmth. and uh, a lot like if your mom was actually in the room, your brain makes it real. And if your mom used to beat the crap out of you, your amygdala is going to light up, the part of the brain, for fear and anger. And if mom's uh, relationship with you is complicated, maybe your anterior cingulate cortex and your amygdala are going to light up, right? The point is, the thing in the past, when human consciousness, becomes a real threat in the present. Your memory can affect you just like the original event. But here's the promise of therapy and of processing things, the grief. When you recall something, your brain modifies it the memory changes a little bit. So if you recall painful things in painful settings, if you're abused and you're in a pattern of abuse, those associations with fear and anger get deeper. But if you're in a safe place with safe people and you talk about pain in the past, guess what? The association with fear and anger gets weaker a little bit each time. And so by forgiving other people, that's step one, and step two By processing grief with safe people, you can move through the hurts of the past until those wounds are just scars and not gaping holes in your soul anymore. Which means now when I talk about how I can not only talk about what happened when I was a kid, which is what forgiveness offered me, I can talk about how I felt as a kid, which is what grief offered me. I've integrated those moments in my past into my present, and they no longer hold power over me, which means what? I'm able to accept the gifts that those things offered me because I was bullied so bad as a kid. I'm actually a really independent person that doesn't need a lot of approval. I'm pretty happy just doing what I want to do. I'm okay being a nerd. I don't need to look cool. I'm okay saying really dorky things on this podcast. <laughs> you know, I'm okay laughing at my own jokes uh, alone in my office that then tens of thousands of people will hear in a few days. And all those things I'm just completely comfortable with because I was bullied. But if I don't deal with that pain, avoiding those wounds warps me. So before I grieved and before I forgave, I had some toxic behaviors. I learned I I like to entertain people and I like to be on a stage. But by being on a stage, I amassed enough social capital that nobody could bully me. And I controlled social interactions. I became so popular that no one could put me under their thumb. It was a defensive reaction. Um, Because I did care Uh, On some level about validation, I was afraid that all this newfound approval people offered me was temporary. I tended to invest myself in unhealthy romantic relationships because I was looking for some validation, some, some sign that I really was worthy of love. So even though it's difficult to dig into the past, even though forgiving people who have hurt you is hard work, And even though grieving the hurt and loss that comes with abuse and trauma is painful, I believe it's worth it. And I believe that psychological science supports that that's the best way to be a whole, healthy, satisfied person who can do good work in this world and who can have healthy relationships. So may you learn to forgive those who have hurt you. And may you be able to grieve the wounds that you are given. Man, good questions this week. You know, uh, it's tough for me the weeks where like there's a lot like this is just going to be my opinion. (laughs) I really like it better when I can use some hard science and, (laughs) you know, because sometimes I'm not convinced I I have anything of value to say. Uh, so I just I just give you guys you know the best thoughts I have on what you've asked. I hope that's okay. So I mentioned at the beginning of the program, we're planning an event with the liturgists. Uh, if any of you don't know who listen to this show, I do another podcast called the Liturgist Podcast. The guy named Michael Gunger Van Gunger, and uh, we make uh, spiritual art and experiences for the spiritually homeless and frustrated. So we do a podcast. We also make these liturgical releases, these uh, basically worship experiences in a box that you can get on iTunes. And we also do live events. Well, now we're doing something different. It's going to be a, a very small conference. It's going to be in Atlanta, uh, June 15th and 16th. Uh, it's called Belong. And it's a, it's a conference all about making room at the table for everybody. So if you're having trouble finding a faith community that will accept you as you are, or you're afraid to talk openly about what you believe or don't believe about God, this is the place you can do it. Or if you are the kind of person that likes to create and organize spiritual communities, maybe you're a church staff person, maybe you're a church planner, and you want to learn you know, what we've learned about a safe spiritual community, That's what this event is about. So Michael Gunger and I will be there. You're going to hear some familiar voices from our liturgies and from our podcast as well. And I just think it's going to be a great time. Now, it's limited to only 100 people. Uh, It's a relatively small space. We also want to keep these intimate. We want to make sure that people have an opportunity not only to hear what we have to say, but to have discussion. And uh, here's the deal. You're going to hear this podcast Monday, May the 4th, if you listen the day it comes out. This registration for this conference is going to open up May the 5th, and when the 100 tickets are gone, they're gone. So I'm trying to get the word out for people who might be interested, East Coast kind of folks. Keep an eye out at theliturgist.com or at the liturgist social media, or I'll retweet this stuff and share it on my Facebook page as well. But May 5th is the day, so we'd love to see you at Belong. Uh, Now, for Ask Science Mike, man, these are great questions. Keep them coming. You can use the hashtag AskScienceMike on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. Not very many people do that, though. It's much easier to go to AskScienceMike.com, and you can record a voice message there uh, right on the website. Super easy. You can even do it on your iPhone. Or you can put a text question in. You can type out a question, and you can put questions in anonymously that way. Uh, Of course, Ask Science Mike is listener-supported. You guys are the ones that make this show possible, and every single dollar helps. I've been blown away by your generosity. Thank you to all of you that are participating, that are making the show possible. I I deeply, deeply appreciate it. I I don't even honestly know how to thank you. Um, But for those of you who haven't yet, uh, you can cancel or change your pledge at any time. I understand money gets tight. Never feel bad about that. If you've overcommitted by by all means reduce your pledge okay i'll 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 live i'll be fine um now people who who pitch in get early show access they pick show questions they can add their own questions they can have their name mentioned on the air and if money's tight you can still help the show uh by rating us on iTunes that lots of people have done that by the way i read all those reviews and i can't stop smiling for like 2 hours when i do that because you guys are so kind I, and I'm not, by the way, when I say something like that, that's not a throwaway. Like it's a real thing, the degree to which this community of people is a blessing to me. All of you listening, all of you that take the time to rate on iTunes, to share the show on Twitter or Facebook, leave comments, send me nice emails, all that stuff, it makes it possible to do this because it does take a lot of time and energy, but you guys keep me going. And of course, our show is produced by Greg Mordine, one of those people that keeps me going as well. He does a great job. And our theme song is by Jeff Botterford. If you'd like original podcast music for your own podcast, Jeff can help you. He's, he's brilliant. And as a bonus, he's the size of a bear. So if you need somebody roughed up, he can do that as well. Links to them on the show notes at AskScienceMike.com, as well as resources for every single question. Hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I'll see you guys next week.